Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll get an idea of what it's like at the Montreal Jazz Festival. Musician and the host of the Third Story podcast, Leo Citrin, is there for WBGO. After a two-year slowdown due to COVID, the Montreal Jazz Festival is back this year. WBGO's Nate Chinen chats with author, journalist, concert producer, and educator Ashley Kahn about the new jazz immigrants. I found it incredibly surprising to see the number of musicians who have decided to relocate to Europe. And it, it absolutely uh, put me in the mind of, you know, what happened in the 1950s and 60s. And WBGO's John Kalish takes us to the Jet Lag Festival. And then we came up with the idea that we would have a goal of trying to raise $50,000 to donate to Ukraine relief efforts. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. The Montreal Jazz Festival is underway and the excitement is building. Musician Leo Sidrin is the host of the Third Story podcast for WBGO Studios. He's enjoying the sights and sounds of the festival and begins his coverage for WBGO. The Montreal Jazz Festival started in 1980 and grew into one of the largest jazz gatherings in the world. In fact, they boast that they're ranked as the world's largest by Guinness World Records. When it comes to live music size is not all that matters, but the Montreal Jazz Festival is definitely impressive, featuring 10 days, 20 stages, hundreds of concerts, and thousands of fried potatoes, because Montreal is, of course, the home of that dish that you don't want to tell your doctor about, poutine. The majority of the concerts are outdoors, free, and open to the public. The lineup is diverse, and there is something for everyone. After a two-year slowdown due to COVID, the Montreal Jazz Festival is back this year, and the streets of the Place des Festivals, the epicenter of the event, are buzzing. Every afternoon of the festival, the Urban Science Brass Band parades through the grounds like Pied Pipers gathering a trail of people behind them and sounding the call that the evening's events are commencing. A jazz festival of this size can be a challenge for anyone who suffers from the fear of missing out. On opening night, for example, audiences were tasked with deciding between concerts by the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis, Christian McBride, Joel Fromm, Gogo Penguin, Emmanuel Wilkins, Corey Wong, and Julian Lodge, who you hear behind me right now. All of those were happening within the space of a couple of hours. After two years of waiting, concert goers are now confronted with an embarrassment of riches. How one handles that many choices is a test of strength and conviction. Fortunately, there are no wrong answers. But there is some question of whether or not this is a return to life as it was before COVID or a new reality. Drummer Dave King says he's traveling lighter this year than ever. We're just rolling really lean and mean. Yeah. So I don't even have a stick back. How is that musically? I mean, I like to bring my cymbals. I just, they get lost a lot in Europe. And I guess right now it's, we were notified, just don't even try. And then it became, don't even try to bring a bag to check. Bring a carry-on only. So we were rolling with carry-ons. So what's cool about that is you don't have to worry about bringing your suit with you. Nope, I don't. I don't have to bring my um, my. You know, I like to wear that Dick Tracy suit from 1990, the old NBA player suit I used to wear. Can't bring that one. Can't bring it. Doesn't fit anymore in the in the um, carry-on. Dave King is not alone in dealing with the sartorial struggles of life on the road. I found bassist Christian McBride on his way to the mall. Seriously. Now I gotta go to the mall and find a couple of pair of jeans. It won't be too hard. This is my last chance before I head to Europe tomorrow for three weeks. Because, you know, once I get to Europe, you know, you're not going to find no plus sizes over there. Philadelphia size pants. <laughs> That's <in> right. <laughs> That's Christian McBride proving that jazz musicians are just like everyone else. They put their pants on one leg at a time. 
The question of where jazz is headed continues to evolve. But I'll be in Montreal all week for the festival. I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. In the 40s, 50s, and 60s, several black American jazz players made the decision to move abroad. They were treated differently there, with a deeper, more personal degree of respect, and were able to enjoy social and romantic freedoms denied by the inherent racism back home. Today, the reasons to move abroad remain strong and compelling. WBGO's Nate Chenin spoke with author, journalist, concert producer, and educator Ashley Kahn about his coverage of the new jazz emigres. And I am here with the esteemed author and journalist, Grammy winner, Ashley Kahn, my good friend. Ashley, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for that intro. Of course, I could go on and on. Um, I'm happy to say that among your many credentials, Ashley, we can now say that you have a byline at WBGO.org um, with a really fantastic in-depth piece that we're calling The New Jazz Emigres. Um, and there's so much information in this piece. Um, I wonder if you could start by, by saying where it began. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I was able to get back on the road, as it were, um, and get back to both participating in teaching and um, various festivals, jazz festivals over in Europe last fall. And uh, in fact, without even trying, uh, you know, the hunger to reconnect uh, different parts of the jazz world led to a six-week tour uh, through many uh, Western European uh, cities and festivals and conservatories. And I found it incredibly surprising to see the number of musicians who have decided to relocate to Europe. And it, it absolutely uh, put me in the mind of, you know, what happened in the 1950s and 60s with a whole generation of American uh, jazz musicians who decided to either permanently or temporarily, um, you know, call Europe home. And, of course, um, in uh, uh, speaking with these musicians... You know, the, the, the discovery was that many of them had a variety of reasons. Um, and with the world being even more complicated and sophisticated and um, uh, with so many more challenges going on in the present day, it sort of all made sense to try and cover this as a story and understand how jazz fits into the whole global sphere. Well, you alluded to it. Um, but we should say that when we talk about that, you know, original generation of musicians who, who went abroad, some of the names that people will know are drummer Kenny Clark and uh, pianist Bud Powell. And then, you know, after that, Kenny Drew, Dexter Gordon. Um, and, uh, you know, we could go on and on, but, you know, a, a really prominent uh, name in that circle is someone you actually spoke with, um, the saxophonist and poet and playwright and uh, NEA jazz master, Archie Shepp. Thank 
Archie was um, uh, in Paris when I spoke with him, and he had some uh, very interesting things to say about this idea of musicians relocating to Europe, both from a historical perspective and from uh, you know uh, today's kind of vantage point. What year did he originally go to Paris? Uh, his first time in Paris was 1963, but he had already been to Europe the year before uh, with Bill Dixon. And in mm -hmm. fact, their very first stop was at a communist uh, retreat that had been sponsored by the Soviet Union. And I believe that Pete Seeger, Peter, Paul, and Mary were also on this trip. And that was in Helsinki, Finland. Wow. Yeah. Um, so when you spoke with Archie about this topic... Um, you were talking about what originally uh, prompted his move, right? Um, but you also reflected on um, how he sees those differences between the European scene now and, and then. Um, what insights did he have? Well, it, it would be good, I think, to hear from Archie himself on this. But, you know, the idea is that um, uh, as much as things have changed, a lot of things do stay the same, too. Um, uh, Archie's perspective on it was that, um, you know, back in the 60s, uh, it was a uh, time of uh, discovery. And it, it, it definitely tied into the civil rights movement of that day. And he has never lost that feeling that his role as an African-American is here in America as far as fighting that fight, you know, being part of that struggle. Um, whereas um, other artists, you know, were, were able to say goodbye, you know, and other uh, uh, musicians were always on a fence about it. Miles Davis, for example, um, you know, who fell in love with a French woman in 1949 and yet could not see leaving the States even for that. Well, let's hear uh, a bit of your conversation with Archie Shep. Did you have any feeling that first trip to Paris of possibly remaining in, in Europe? And if, you know, if, if yes or no, or why? Well, I, I can't really say because I, I didn't really uh, spend enough time in, in, in France to really have any thoughts about permanently relocating. But, but I suppose that was in my mind at that time. That uh, I, Somehow I thought that living in Europe was preferable to living in the States. I don't know if it was just, uh, just to escape racism uh, or just to, to encourage something exotic in my imagination. That was Archie Shep speaking with my guest, Ashley Kahn, in Paris. Um, and, you know, as we talk about that first wave, you know, the language that used to be commonly used in the jazz literature and, and you know, in conversation was that these were jazz expats. And this was actually one point that came up in your research for this piece, um, that that's not a word that we necessarily want to employ um, in this conversation. Could you fill us in on that? Yeah, I think that as we grow more sophisticated and more aware of, of the power of language and the power of terminology, um, in my conversation with Michael League, 
you know, most famous as leader of, of Snarky Puppy. Um, he has relocated to Spain, um, just outside of Barcelona, has a studio there. And his reasons uh, for being over there, by the way, are both very personal, connected to the politics of t- today and wanting not to be... Um, uh, too closely associated with American politics, but also the economic opportunities that are available to a musician who is wanting to extend themselves towards the role of producer, um, you know, and, and music creator in general, which is really, you know, Michael's kind of professional path at this moment. Um, but Michael was v- very, very conscious of the word expat versus immigrant versus, I mean, alien. And he said, you know, if you think about it, all of these terms really mean the same thing. Someone leaving one area, one country, one national place of origin and relocating to another country. Um, and expat is weighted with this idea that, oh, it's done with a certain level of uh, financial freedom and, and um, uh, ability, and that it's not something that is connected to desperation, uh, etc. And that kind of judgment, the judgments that, that come connected with that, those words, and how they're like such political hot buttons right now, right. Um, was something that he was a point that he wanted to talk about. One thing that I do want to say, though, about this, okay. because you were talking about expats. Right, one, sure. I, I, I would... I was uh, going to ask if I didn't, it's something I didn't bring up. Or whatever. I would just like to bring up the distinction between the words expat, immigrant, migrant. And I would prefer to not be called an expat, actually. I prefer to be called an immigrant. Because, I, because those are words that all mean the same thing. They're, it, they're just tinted so, differently. Michael League is in Barcelona, is that right? It's outside of Barcelona. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know... He's right, right near Montserrat. He's actually someone who illuminates for us the idea that um, it's, not, it's not just... Um, you know, considerations of race and racism that lead an artist to to move from the United States to Western Europe. Um, there are all these other factors at play. How would you characterize the sort of that web of considerations that you encountered here? Well, Nate, I, I would say that there's absolutely no one I talked to that did not talk about American racism or American politics. I would say that that is so in the air and so woven into our current reality that um, there's no one who wasn't aware of it um, and hasn't made decisions um, uh, based upon a, a, a deep distaste for what's going on in this country. Um, the uh, uh, other factors, of course, that play in are the economic opportunities that are afforded musicians overseas. Joe Sanders, uh, the bassist, for example, brought up the fact that being a bassist based in in uh, France at this point makes him much more desirable for touring uh, uh, jazz tours going over to uh, Europe because that's one less musician that they have to pay an overseas flight for and have to worry about you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's much that much more available. And so yeah. uh, surprisingly to him, he, his phone started ringing 
uh, uh, much more, and when Charles Lloyd or uh, uh, Wayne Escoffery and, and other groups like that were, were touring, um, he just found that he was being called upon a lot more often. The people you spoke with, people like Gregory Hutchinson, Logan Richardson, the saxophonist, they, they all said a, a version of the same thing, which is that, you know, the issues around racism in America that that compelled that first wave of, you know, of emigres in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s. By the way, I should add that, you know, that 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 wasn't the first wave, you know, mm -hmm. when jazz actually began, uh, Sidney Bechet. Right. And a and a, a slew of other musicians were finding work uh, in the 1920s over in the capitals of Europe. It goes back almost as far as what we as what we know as jazz. That's true. Um, but so so they all these musicians were consistent in in saying that you know the same issues are still the issues at heart here. You know, um, and and yeah. certain things have changed about it and about you know, how we navigate racism, but, but really the core issue uh, is still at, at play. And, and that was, you know, that's a disheartening thing to consider in some ways. Um, but, you know, we see all the resilience that they bring to, you know, addressing the, the situation. You know, the, 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 uh, the whole um, uh, issue with, with, um, you know, people of African heritage and uh, what they face in the Western world uh, is a matter of degrees. You know, mm -hmm. it's not a matter of it being here and not there. Right. Um, you know, every musician I spoke to said every country has its problems with mm -hmm. immigration in general and with certain, uh, you know, immigrant groups that uh, arrive and um you know there's no perfect place but what was um in general a, a, a sort of you know common theme is that in europe there is this feeling that um uh economic opportunities and uh, uh the ability to live your life and to walk down the street is a lot easier than in the states you know well I want to talk about that, but before we do, there's a quote um, pertaining to the, the racism issue that I, I think is really important. Logan Richardson was reflecting on the first time, you know, that he went to Italy to live. Um, and and it, it really struck him that as he was walking around, you know, he was conscious of being seen primarily not as black, but as an American. You know, so it's like there's still an otherness at play. But it is a, a different kind of otherness and had more to do with his his national identity than his than his ethnic and cultural identity. Um, and he found that as as liberating. Yes. I mean, at the same time, you have someone like Archie Shep, you know, describing the difference of what it's like to be African-American versus growing up in France, where you are first by law and by tradition and by dictate a Frenchman, you know, a French person. And, and, and yet at the same time, you know, how, uh, you know, how real and unreal that is, you know, coming from uh, the United States and seeing that. 
So there's a variety of perspectives, and I think it, it all depends on not only their experiences, but how long they've been experiencing it. And of course, Archie spent his you know, most of his years um, at least traveling to Europe, if not living in Europe. So he has a, a, he's going to definitely have a different perspective than the other cats that I talk to who are you know of a younger generation. You mentioned the economic opportunity, and we are now sort of um, just on the cusp of high summer festival season. You know, it was this time last year that you that you went to Europe and and as you say had this kind of grand six week tour. Um, how how much of a factor is that in this sort of um, economic opportunity? Just the European festival apparatus, which is such a big thing. You know, the, the whole idea of Europe as a destination for uh, musicians, even musicians just starting out, it is absolutely part of the um, uh, economic base of being a musician, uh, being a creative musician, being someone who's engaged with jazz or music of the black roots. You know that the the amount of of uh, revenue that is possible over in Europe far supersedes uh, club gigs and teaching gigs, etc. Over here in the states, it's a necessary component of any career building that's going on for a musician. One musician you spoke with uh, is the singer and pianist Melody Gardot, who has been living in Paris. Um, for how long now? For almost five years. How was I to know that this was always only just a little game to you? All the time I thought you gave your heart, I thought that I would do the same for you. Tell the truth, I think I should have seen it coming from a mile away When the words you say are, baby, I'm a fool who thinks it's cool to fall in love And she spoke to some of what we've been talking about, this idea of cultural appreciation, not just on the institutional level and the sort of infrastructure level, but, but even just, you know, in terms of audiences um, and the general kind of awareness of, of what the arts mean. Yeah, she, she talks about the idea of a sort of category-free um, uh, um, relationship between artists and audience uh, in France and in Europe in general, actually, and that the kind of dedication between uh, uh, a fan base and the, and the musician is something that lasts a long, long time, and that it's not looked upon as something that is, uh, oh, that that artist is getting too old or aging out from, you know, uh, um, where things are today. Uh, and that is very un-American, you know. We we have a short-term memory over here in general, um, you know, uh, so that uh, it's, it's less about fads and trends and much more about, a uh, you know, appreciating appreciating the musician as an artist. Perfect example, of course, is Miles Davis, you know, and that even through all of his changes and whatnot, France remained so devoted to him and he continued to sell out shows and kind of live a almost rock star status over there. Thank you, Ashley Kahn, for all of your, your work and your expertise and, uh, and, 
for really shining a light on this. Um, I think it's a it's a great way to consider this like new development, um, and I think we're going to continue to see it growing. Yeah, we're in a very special moment right now, and it's uh, amazing to look around and say, "Wow, this only got more exciting and more inspiring." And for all of that, I just remain very positive and hopeful at a time when you know the headlines are kind of pushing in another direction. But Nate, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, our pleasure. You can read Ashley Kahn's article at wbgo.org. About 30 miles from the original Woodstock Festival, every summer there's a gathering of Russian, Slavic, and East European musicians at the Jet Lag Festival in the Catskills. WBGO's John Kalish went to this year's festival to see how the war in Ukraine affected the performances. When the war in Ukraine started, the organizers of the Jet Lag Festival weren't sure whether they should hold it this year. 28-year-old Alice Feldman is the daughter of Jet Lag's founders. She serves as one of the festival's creative directors. We paused all of our planning for three weeks just to kind of take stock in early March of what was happening. And then we came up with the idea that we would have a goal of trying to raise $50,000 to donate to Ukraine relief efforts. And when we decided to do that, we got the inspiration and the spark to go ahead with this year. Jetlag's organizers won't know for another week whether they reach that $50,000 goal. Soon after the war started, Feldman left her job at a talent agency representing jazz musicians to volunteer with a global disaster relief team, a new nonprofit created by one of Jetlag's medics. Feldman spent a month this spring at the Poland-Ukraine border helping set up the operation. She says the challenge for Jetlag's organizers was to include programming relating to Ukraine, but not overdo it. We tried as much as we could to not all of a sudden become a Ukrainian festival. We're not that. We're something else. As soon as war began, we said, it will last a few days and then it will be over. This is an excerpt of a site-specific installation created for jet lag that featured readings by Ukrainian playwrights. This is Olga Chikina, a prominent Russian singer-songwriter who's appeared at jet lag in the past. She's one of several Russian performers who were unable to get a visa for this year's festival. This is Alyosha Levstein, a 24-year-old former Muscovite who fled Russia soon after the war began. His father was a prominent jazz musician who played with Duke Ellington and Thad Jones. Levstein worked as a graphic designer before emigrating. He's now living on a farm in Maryland with friends of his grandmother. This is a dream for me, to become a professional performer. But I don't know if that will happen. So maybe I should just do it for fun, having it as a hobby. The bass player in this band, the Flying Balkan Laikas, left Russia just before the war started. He was an outspoken critic of the Putin regime. 
I met another Russian rocker from a band called Crematory, who's been in the U.S. since January and may not return to Russia. The performance artist Daniel Cherkasky was born in Kiev and came to the U.S. as a teenager. He's performed old Soviet propaganda songs in Chicago art galleries, sometimes with video projections and occasionally while bouncing on a trampoline. Cherkasky decided it would be inappropriate to do that material at Jetlag this year. When you sing Russian songs right now, they have a certain toxicity to them. It used to be funny to sing about the communist regime fantasies about colonizing other stars, because there was a distance with them. It was in the past, Soviet Union has collapsed. So it felt like a content that was safe to use. And now it's not. Social singing is a big thing at Jetlag's campsites. Cherkasky says he noticed it was filtered this year. Wearing sad clown makeup with blue and yellow lipstick, Cherkasky sang Ukrainian songs during his set on Jetlag's main stage. <laughs> Back in Chicago, Daniel Cherkasky works as a manager at a tech company, but he's putting in many hours on the nonprofit he co-founded as soon as the war started. Ukraine Trust Chain has deployed $1.2 million in the process of evacuating and feeding 36,000 people from the areas under bombardment in Ukraine. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next weekend for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.